morning, everyone. It is with great pleasure that I introduce today Jane Clark, who is a senior research fellow of uh, the Mohidin Admirable Society and who worked particularly on the Society's archive and projects so hard, uh, as well as looking after the, uh, the library. She's been studying Ibn Arabi for more than 40 years and is engaged in teaching courses and lecturing uh, on his thought both in the UK uh, and abroad, uh, as well as in research and translation of the Akbarian heritage. She has a particular interest in the correlation of Ibn Arabi's uh, thoughts with contemporary issues. Um, she was a co-founder of the Journal of Consciousness Studies, and she's been for many years now um, editing on the Bashara magazine, is that correct? Uh, which is free online to access, by the way. Uh, she organizes the MIS uh, Young Writers Board. Enjoy the talk. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. So the title of my talk is um, <coughs> Ibn Arabi Counsels His Own Soul, Guidance and Misleading in the Holy Spirit in the Counseling of the Soul. So the title of this symposium is, take, is a reference to a passage in Kitab al-Mubasharat where Ibn Arabi describes an incident which happened during his first day in Mecca in about 600 of the Hijra, about 1202 of the Common Era. He tells us that he fell into a state of despondency about the people he was teaching, saying, When I realized that those who, tr who enter the path are exceedingly rare, I lost courage and decided to devote my efforts in future to myself alone and abandon people to their fate, unquote. However, later that night he had a dream in which he saw himself facing God at the Day of Judgment. So here is... He says, I was standing in front of my Lord, head lowered and fearing that he would punish me for my abandonment. But he said to me, O oh my servant, fear nothing. All I ask of you is that you counsel my people. Following this vision, he says, he devoted himself to teaching, quote, pointing out the straight way and the dangers to be feared, addressing myself to all people, lawyers, dervishes, Sufis and believers. Unquote. The verb he uses for counsel here is nasaha, which has the basic meaning to give good counsel or sincere advice, to be sincere, to mean someone well, or to act in good faith towards somebody. It can also mean to admonish or exhort, but the spirit of the verb is that this is in a friendly way, in a spirit of friendship. Very soon after this incident, while still in Mecca, <coughs> he wrote the long, complex work on which my, work, my talk is today based, uh, The Holy Spirit in the Counselling of the Soul. I will be referring to this throughout as the Ruh, which is a shortened form of its title in Arabic, Rizalat Ruh al-Quds fi Manasahat al-Nafs. As you can see, the book title uses this verb Nasaha in a verb form, and in fact, it is the particular form of this verb is a mutual form. It's a mutually exchange of advice. And in the opening lines, Ibn Arabi refers to himself as the one who was ordered with giving advice to his brothers and who is more rigorous in doing this than anyone else of his time. Ru is one of Ibn Arabi's first didactic, truly didactic works, the first the, the earlier works that we know of are much more visionary in their content. And it should be seen, I think, 
as one of his first attempts to respond to the command he'd received by laying out his own particular vision of the spiritual way and distinguishing it from that of other Sufi masters, both past and present. So the title, as Richard's pointed out, is, is um, mentions advice in spiritual times. And there is no doubt that this early period in Mecca was indeed a difficult time for Ibn Arabi. It was a difficult time for the Islamic world in general, which was under attack on, on several different fronts. The Christian Franks were pressing upon the borders of Moorish Spain, while in the heartlands it was the time of the Crusades, and Jerusalem changed hands three times during Ibn Arabi's lifetime. More important than either of these, however, was what was happening in the east, where the Mongols were causing terror and havoc as they invaded Muslim territory. There was a massive population movement as people fled ahead of them, creating what these days we would call a refugee crisis, which was comparable, or may even exceed actually in its scale, what is happening in our own times. There was a deep general fear that the Islamic Ummah would not, would not survive. And we should not forget <coughs> that Ibn Arabi himself was, in a way, a refugee. One of the many people who, from Andalusia who left their homeland never to return. And that the area in which he settled for the middle period of his life, Anatolia, was one of the main regions where all these refugees found refuge. From his own account, and we must remember in reading this, that this is a didactic text, so it is not necessarily autobiographical in a literal sense. The period in Mecca was always very challenging for Ibn Arabi personally. In the Rue, for instance, he says, I want to inform you, my friend, of something which unexpectedly happened between me and my soul. I saw my soul in this country as imprisoned and overwhelmed. I am, as you know, one of those who asserts that the soul is existent, and it is never permissible, in my opinion, to say that it can die in relation to its qualities because of my knowledge concerning its realities and its place. This address is to my friend because Rue is written in the form of a letter to his great friend and spiritual companion, Abdulaziz al-Mahdoui, with whom he had stayed in Tunis on his way east. We also get the first appearance here of the word nafs, which is in the book's title. This can be translated as soul or self, and is often, in Sufi writings, regarded as the equivalent of the ego, meaning that it is seen as the enemy of the spirit, such that it has to be crushed and annihilated if realisation is to be achieved. But here, right at the beginning of his exposition, we get a hint that Ibn Arabi has a different perspective on it, or her. For the, Arabic, for the, for the word in Arabic is feminine, and as we shall see, she becomes personified in the passages that, that follow. I'm going to read you the rest of this passage, which is a bit long, but I want to give you an idea of the story, which is at the heart of the book. Uh, Ibn Arabi begins by saying more about this unease he finds in himself in these early Meccan days. He describes an inner experience which produced a state of what he called a fierce disquiet, a great sorrow, and a destructive fear. 
Following this, he says, I decided to break my promise and not to sit with people anymore, for I had been given a forceful order to sit and give counsel to people, so I had held forth with elevated words and cutting arguments. I withdrew with my soul to the place where I was living, and I weighed the gifts that God had given me against the state in which I found myself. I did not find any relation between the two which would connect them, and no cause which would explain the situation. So I became afraid by God that God was subjecting me to trickery and luring me into a trap. So I went into seclusion by myself, and as a result I was given knowledge which only God knows. At first I did not find any route by which I could subject my soul as the ways to all the varieties of primordial truths and knowledge had become blocked off from me until God was gracious to me through a vision I witnessed. Through this, I gained victory over my soul and applied the balance of justice to her. In this vision, you think, I was given, in my, I was given to see in my sleep that it was as if I had been made to enter paradise. When I got beyond the gate, not having seen any fire or gathering or reckoning and nothing of the terrors of the day of judgment, I found myself in a state of great ease, such that one could not measure the extent of joy of it. And I praised God, just as it says in the Quran about those that are blessed. However, when I woke up, I realized there was some defect in my state. And that had my soul, but my soul had laid claim to a knowledge above that which she had been given by God. Had she in truth realized a divine, holy state, holy transcendent state of realization by which she would have been annihilated, it would not have experienced any pleasure at entering paradise or had any awareness of relief. And its transcendence in the glory of God would have diverted its attention from serving its own ease and its awareness of escaping the terrors of the threat. But my soul sought to refute my argument by protesting that there are many human realities and degrees. However, I did not listen to her, and I built my case against her, informing her about her deficiency and the grandiosity of her claims in things in which she was short of understanding. I praised God that he had given me victory over her and said to her, O oh my soul, by the power of the one who created you according to rebellion and made you inclined towards every blameworthy characteristic, I will not abandon you to your claims until I make you turn in all your states towards the book of God and the way of life of the prophet. If you agree to this, and I find no defect, then I will surrender to you in what you want, and you may establish over me some of your authority. Unquote. What develops from this point is an extended dialogue between Ibn Arabi and his own soul, in which he questions her about her conformity to the teachings of Islam. In particular, in the second section of the book, he exposes her to the examples of the ten, ten companions of the Prophet who embody ten different spiritual virtues. She, in turn, retaliates with arguments justifying her position. 
Eventually, however, she capitulates, and following their discussion on Abu Dada, whom Ibn Arabi presents as demonstrating the importance of the Quran in achieving mastery of the soul, she says, I am satisfied, and by God I have asked for help, so tell me something more, for I have come to know and to verify that I am nothing, and I am good for nothing. I am in my existence and in my essence, just as I was before my existence. It says in the Quran, I created you before when you were nothing. And did there come to the human being a moment of time in which they were even a thing mentioned? It has not ceased to be like that, and it will not cease." Unquote. So, in this capitulation, the soul is brought to admitting her complete dependence upon God, not only for things like nourishment, knowledge and ability, but for existence itself. And this is, of course, fundamental, the fundamentals of Ibn Arabi's principles of Waqdat al-Wujud, the unity of existence, that there is only one being, one reality, and the self, as with all created beings, is therefore not self-subsistent, but is continually brought into being through divine action, through divine mercy. She cannot, therefore, said to be necessarily existent, nor can she said to be said totally non-existent, but she is, but rather she is in a state between being and not being, continually becoming. So, there are a couple of things I want to draw out about this passage. First, Ibn Arabi holds open the possibility that our soul or ourself might be able to give us true guidance. That is, we might, as he puts it, legitimately give her some authority over us. In other words, we can, in principle, rely on ourselves, in our sensibilities and our judgment, in determining truth from falsehood, correct action from incorrect. But we also have to be aware that the self, being in this in-between state, is not necessarily a reliable counsellor. She does not want to submit to God and will attempt to trick us so that she can avoid doing so. And this trickiness and deceitful of the nafs, deceitfulness of the nafs, is really the central theme of Rue, which is essentially an extended and sustained attack upon spiritual pretension and hypocrisy. That is, upon those who pretend to a state that they do not, in fact, have. So, for example, in the first part of the book, Ibn Arabi employs very strong language in criticising some of the Sufis he met in the cities of the Islamic heartlands when he arrived from the western regions, comparing them unfavourably to the great spiritual masters of the past. As for the people of your time, my friend, they are best described in the words of Al-Tirmidhi, who said, obvious weakness and vast pretense. They care only about prayer rugs, coloured patches, robes, walking sticks and decorated heads like old women. They use the superficial aspects of religion to obtain ephemeral things. They take refuge in Sufi hospices, enjoying both what is permitted and what is not permitted. They have broadened their sleeve and fattened their bodies." Unquote. 
The Rue, actually, is not predominantly concerned with novices to the way, as it is only to be expected that they will not have mastery over their souls and will be attracted to all sorts of extravagant and ostentatious things in the early stage of the training. Rather, it directs its main criticism towards people who take on the roles of teachers and masters, claiming that they have the right to guide others, when in fact they are still under the domination of their lower self. By contrast, Ibn Arabi's advice is that when given the command, counsel my people, which is, of course, in effect an invitation to take on the role of spiritual master, we should submit ourselves to careful scrutiny to make sure that we are not being tricked into assuming a position to which we are not really entitled. There is an interesting transition in the passage we have just read. At first, he says, Ibn Arabi says, I was afraid that God was subjecting me to trickery, and luring me into a trap. And this matter of divine trickery is Quranic, where it is said that God is the best of deceivers. This does not mean that God is false in any essential way, for God is al-Haq, the truth. It is said always in a context where people are plotting against him or one of his messages, and it is made that God can beat them at their own game, such as their own plotting and deceit is turned against them. In Quran 7.99, it is said, Did they, the unbelievers, feel secure against the trickery of God? But no one can feel secure against the trickery of God except those bound for ruin. Unquote. So this is Ibn Arabi's fear, that he is one of those bound for ruin, and this, this order to counsel is a ruse to expose him. But then he describes how God helps him and reveals to him that it is in fact his own self which is the deceiver. One of the features of Rue is that there is constant echoes or resonances with the great classical works of Sufism. And this is clearly intentional um, <clears throat> because it is the work where Ibn Arabi is concerned to define his place within the tradition, which had already developed a very strong intellectual context with toposes and stories with which everyone would have been familiar. In this section on trickery, there is a very strong resonance with the passage in Al-Ghazali's Munkir al-Dalal, the deliverer from, Eve, from error, in which Al-Ghazali describes how having fallen into a state of total skepticism, in which he can find no basis on which to distinguish truth from falsehood, good from evil, God plants what he calls a light in his heart, by which he is able to discriminate good from evil. The point he is making is that this is a God-given grace, and it is brought as an argument against the alternative way of the philosophers, the Aristotelian philosophers, uh, <clears throat> who are equally concerned with the mastery of the self, but assert that it can be achieved through knowledge and effort alone. In our passage, Ibn Arabi is having a similar swipe at the philosophical path, showing that the mastery of the self can only be achieved in the end by the, by the action of divine grace. So here we come across a clue as to why the book might be titled The Holy Spirit in the Counseling of the Soul. However, it would not be right to give the impression that Ibn Arabi is advocating a path that relies on grace alone, in advocating rigorous examination of our own states and motives, 
he is also firmly placing himself within a school of Sufi thought, which includes early masters such as Harith al-Muhasbi and Abu al-Qasim al-Junaid, who <coughs> developed what Atif Halil, in his excellent recent book, Repentance and the Return to God, has called, quote, a detailed science of moral psychology. This aims to make us, quote, conscious of the stratagems and machinations of the lower, school, of the lower soul and the Satan as they erect obstacles to the process of inner purification, unquote, unquote. And this means making constant effort to be vigilant over selves, ourselves, even though ultimately we exceed in complete mastery only through divine grace. In placing himself within this school, Ibn Arabi also argues against the extreme asceticism of some of the strands of the Sufi tradition, and in particular, as we have seen, the idea that the self can in any real sense be finally annihilated or totally eliminated from our frame of reference. This is an important theme in Ru, which is developed in various ways, but today I'm going to limit myself to this nice little passage, which comes <coughs> just after the soul's final submission, where Ibn Arabi extemporizing upon the famous advice of Abu Dabar that people need to withdraw from other people in order to be close to God. In seclusion, Ibn Arabi says, the seeker, quote, the instinct, must return to their nafs interiorly and be occupied her with the side of their Lord, detesting her with a variety of criticisms concerning her lack of veracity in work and her lack of purity and the entry of defect into her mode of address, thoughts, counselling, this is my emphasis, and indications. So they come to loathe her more than they loathe people. But, I don't think, but they cannot separate themselves from their soul as they can from other people and she cannot separate herself from them. Then there is opened up for them in this matter something of the divine inspiration and the private knowledge of God, Ilma Laduni, which is only known to those who have witnessed it. So while there can be no final annihilation of the nafs, at the same time we can never be certain of a complete and final capitulation to the divine order. Therefore, there is no point at which we have made it, such that we can award ourselves with exemption from the ordinary demands of the religion or the way. Even if we are fortunate enough to experience extraordinary states of mystical union, in which we are momentarily released from the constrictions of relativity and the requirements of bodily existence in what has been called the ecstatic flight of the Sufi, Ibn Arabi tells us that we nevertheless always return to our homeland, Mautan, and it is the requirement of wisdom that we act according to the demands of the place in which we find ourselves. And for Ibn Arabi, our ultimate homeland, the place from which we never really move, is what he calls the servanthood, Ubudia. That is, that place at which Ibn Arabi's soul arrives when she comes to the realization that she is nothing. For Ibn Arabi, this is the irreducible fact of our human condition. And in this place, 
we are all equal. The spiritual master being subject to the same order as the simple believer. And we can never regard ourselves as special or superior to others. Or it is even the case, as we shall see, that the more aware and conscious we become, the more the arena of possible defect expands. And so the true spiritual master becomes even more of their defect as they progress along the path rather than vice versa. Thus, Ibn Arabi would certainly agree with the quotation often attributed to Thomas Jefferson, but which I found when I attempted to trace its source for this course, probably never actually said by him, which is, the paternal vigilance is the price of freedom. Just excuse me a minute. Given, second point, given this awareness that the nafs is an unreliable guide, it is notable that at no point in the room does Ibn Arabi even hint at what has become since his own lifetime the classic response to the problem, which is to take a living teacher to keep us on the straight path. It is true that in section three of the room, he describes his own education under a number of teachers in the Maghreb, but he includes more than 70 of them, and it is clear that he was sitting at the feet of several simultaneously. He never indicates that he put himself under the order of obedience of only one teacher. There is no talk of anything like Fanafil Sheikh, and his relationship with many of his masters was clearly quite complex and ambiguous. And this is not only a matter of omission. At the end of the second section, in response to the soul's request that he tell her more, he presents to her the figure whom he regards as the most exemp perfect exemplar of realization, the early Islamic saint Uwais al-Qurani. Al-Qurani was a contemporary of the Prophet Muhammad, but he never met him. He was unable to join the jihad because he had to care for his aged mother. Within the Sufi tradition, he represents the possibility of a person attaining perfection without any formal teaching or any intermediary between themselves and God. Those who reach realization in this manner are called oases. Ibn Arabi himself belonged to this category because he attained to complete knowledge directly when he was called by God as a teenager and went into seclusion. His subsequent education with the series of masters he describes in Ruh and elsewhere was not therefore a matter of approaching realization step by step through a series of predefined stages, but was undertaken more to complete his experience so that he would be able to help others. The last part of section two of Ruh is devoted, first of all, a comparison of the, the wisdom of Ruwais with that of the famous 10th century master Mansur al-Halaj, which is another swipe at extreme asceticism. And secondly, to a series of narratives which he established the verification of Ruwais' spiritual station by the Prophet Muhammad and his companion and future caliph, Umar, effectively making the argument that this path of direct knowledge should come under the umbrella of mainstream Islam. In short, all that we have said in this section is 
places Ibn Arabi firmly within that, that's, that category of Sufism, which is known as the Melamiya, the people of blame, who hide their spiritual state beneath the cloak of ordinariness, um, without ostentation about their spiritual state. Okay. But, where does this leave us? If Ibn Arabi is telling us that we cannot totally rely upon our own judgment, our own self, and at the same time is not advocating that we take a teacher, where are we to find guidance? And what is the touchstone for judging its veracity? As to the first question, I think it is fair to summarise the answer given in Rue as basically that we can find guidance everywhere from everyone and everything. As we have already seen, he shows us that we can receive it from the teachings of the holy books, which for Ibn Arabi does, of course, mean the Quran and Hadith, and from the human examples of the companions of the prophets and the Sufi masters. He also talks about it the way that we can receive it from our friends and companions on the way. And in fact, spiritual friendship is one of the great themes of the Ru, which we don't have time to discuss in this short talk, but we will look at it a bit in the seminar this, this afternoon. The aspect I want to explore in the final part of the talk, because it seems so relevant to our own difficult times, if we have difficult times, is what he says about the guidance and counselling which can happen through the natural world as this does seem to be an area where there is a lot of pressure on us now to change our understanding. In the first part of the rule, when criticising Sufis who get carried away by the ritual of the Samar, that is, listening to music, Ibn Arabi brings this lovely saying attributed by Kushairi to Abu Uthman al-Mahribi. Whoever lays claim to listening to music without listening to the voices of the birds, the creaking of the door, or the rattling of winds is a false pretender. <coughs> but it is in the fourth section of the book that he really develops the idea of the natural world as being our guide and a teacher. In this long section, he extends the education of his nafs into the cosmic realm by explaining to her her nature as a human being and her role in the world. His main target here, in terms of counselling, is the misconception, common to almost all human beings, that we are intrinsically superior to the beings who are our companions in the world, the realms of the mineral, plants and animals. Specifically, he is concerned with the pretension to vice-regency, the idea supported by the sacred text of both the Bible and the Quran that human beings having the unique distinction of being made in the image of God, have been given dominion over these other realms and the right to rule them and do as we wish with them. Ibn Arabi does not at all deny the special nature of the human being. It is confirmed in the Quran and is at the heart of his own cosmic vision. But what he argues in the Rue is that most people misunderstand the nature of the vice-regency and assume it as a right when they are in fact very far from realising its proper function or meaning. If it were an intrinsic grace, he argues, how come it is given to all human beings, regardless of their spiritual state, 
so that we get bad rulers who act as tyrants, as well as good people who rule wisely. Rather, he maintains, this privilege is given as a test or a trial in our devotion of God. It represents our greatest obstacle to realization, as well as potentially our greatest service. He says, you cannot say that you are more elevated than the minerals or more noble than the angels or lower than them. For he has appointed you to another unique degree which distinguishes you. And that is that God has given you as a gift the mystery of the grand joining together of everything. But this has bailed you from God. The prophet said, I take refuge in you from you. And the mystery of the grand joining together of everything is that which veils you from him. If he had kept you as he kept the rest of the universe, that is, not veiled, then you would have been a servant, but rather he has infused this in you. Unquote. Here, when talking about what in other places he describes in much more neutral language as our integral nature, he uses the word kibriah from the root kabara, the grand mystery. Um, and from the root kabara to be great. And kibriah can mean grandeur, glory, magnificence. But it is also commonly used to describe pride, haughtiness, presumption or arrogance. And his main point is that in assuming this position, either in relation to other people or in relation to the rest of the creation, we are moving away from our servanthood and assuming what he calls lordship, or in the terms in which we have just discussed it, self-subsistence. And here, I think we are without doubt talking what in contemporary terms would be called the ego. Ibn Arabi refers to this tendency towards lordship as a disease uh, for which God has supplied multiple remedies in the form of divine teaching and guidance. If we do not drink these, he says, quote, your outcome according to your capacity will be like a pharaoh or Nimrod, that is, the great tyrants, and everyone else who has pretension to lordship. From the words of the pharaoh to the person who says, if I did not say to him such and such, then such and such would happen, or if it were not for me, my family would perish, or, which is the lowest degree of rulership, to the sheikh in his tariqa who says, if it were not for my himmer towards this individual whom I took under my wing, then he would have perished. The other implication in this passage, the passage about vice-regency, is that the human being is unique in terms of being veiled from the reality of things. The beings of the other realms are not. As such, they are superior to us. And if we are humble enough to recognize this, they have much to teach us. There are many places where Ibn Arabi discusses this in his work, particularly the superior knowledge of the animals, who are always, he says, in a state of cash or essential insight, whereby they see the realities of things directly without the mediation of the intellect, and therefore are thus able to see us in ways that we do not see ourselves. He tells us, as for the animals, we also had sheikhs amongst them. 
Amongst the group of our masters from whom I found support, there was the horse, whose adoration was wonderful, the falcon, the cat, the dog, the cheetah, the bee, and others. I have never been able to describe their worship to its full extent. All I aimed for was to be able to do it from time to time. And they, while still believing in my sovereignty over them, rebuked me and censored me at every moment." Unquote. We are talking about worship here because this is how Ibn Arabi understands the true function of the vice-regent. It is not to oppress or dominate, but to lead creation in praise and worship. In other places, in the Futahat, for instance, he will use the term interchangeably with the word imamia, the imam being the person who leads the congregation in prayer. In Fasus al-Hikam, the ringstones of wisdom, he makes a similar connection in the chapter of David, who was particularly designated as the vice-regent in the Quran, and who was famous for his praise of God such that the mountains and the birds echoed his glorification. In order to lead the congregation of the universe in this way, it is necessary for us to understand the worship of its mem members, learning to listen to their voices and hear their praise. Even more, perhaps, we need to integrate their worship within ourselves. Ibn Arabi says... It is incumbent upon you to have the gratitude and the adoration that is necessary to the minerals, the plants, and the animals. For you gather in yourself the realities of all of them, and you exceed every one. So it is required of you that you work on uncovering in yourself the duration of his high realms and his low realms and all those that are in them. Unquote. And then he says, when this happens, he says, your one prostration stands in the place of worship of all the people of the heavens and the people of the earth. As for how this education can take place, okay, I'm going to go back. This is one piece of reasonably extraordinary advice which Ibn Arabi gives in the section concerned with the blessings which we have been endowed as human beings. It is necessary, my friend, if one of the animals harms you, a dog or a riding animal or a snake or a scorpion or something else from the community of animals, or if a branch of a tree or a leaf from the community of plants harms you, or if a stone harms you when you stumble on it, or it falls on you for a wall, or a child throws it, or someone throws it at something so the stone departs from its original trajectory is diverted towards you, not to get angry, but to remain centred. Refer to your state with your soul and submit it to the balance of justice according to what God has trusted you with as regards vigilance and presence with him. Necessarily, you will find in yourself some shortcoming or excess in the adoration which was entrusted to you in the worship of whatever it was that harmed you be it an animal, plant, and a stone. So ask forgiveness and repent. And be sincere and resolve not to do it again. For, when the, for the pain goes from you in its own time, and when you recover, the thing that has harmed you addresses you. 
and this is called a miracle. But the real miracle is that you become alert to all this and that you repent and take refuge in the safe places of conformity. So, well, so finally, I don't know how the time's going, um, where are these safe places of conformity? So this leads us to the second question which I posed above. What is the touchstone that allows us to determine whether the advice that we are receiving is true or just a deception of the nafs? How can we be secure against the trickery of God? There are many different answers that could be given based on the exposition of the rue, some of which could lead us into the tricky territory of the relationship of Ibn Arabi to the Islamic revelation and to what extent it can be regarded as having universal relevance. My own feeling, however, is that it fundamentally comes down to being a matter of submission and servanthood. We know that we are in the right place when we find ourselves returned to the state of servanthood, when we can hear the voices of the companions who are giving us counsel. And we are likely to be in error when we find ourselves in a state of arrogance, conceit, self-righteousness, or, most important, in a way from the view of the rue, when we are making an ostentatious display of our spirituality. And in this, we have the help and support from all the sources that we have discussed above, including the beings of the non-human realm whose presence, as Ibn Arabi has pointed out in other places, is ubiquitous as well as we are embodied creatures. Just as we cannot escape from our own selves, we cannot escape the presence of these non-human realms, although we can, of course, choose not to listen to what they are telling us, or entrusted, in fact, to tell us. So, I just want to finish by mentioning that although Ibn Arabi often puts this matter of counselling in rather harsh terms, consisting of criticism and admonishment, we should remember that Rue is essentially a work written in the rhetorical tradition, and consequently, there is a lot of exaggerated language in it. As we said in the beginning, the root meaning of nasaha is to give good counsel or sincere advice, to mean someone well. And it is something that happens within a relationship of friendship. I think, as I mentioned, the particular form that he uses for the title, Manas, Manasahat, is a, is, a, is a form which means mutual counselling. As he says at the very beginning of the room, in the passage we will look at this afternoon, my brother, exchanging counsel or sincere advice is the most suitable thing that two friends can do or in which two companions can engage during an evening conversation. Thank you.